0: They are back there, and they would love to take those kids. So uh, Miss Barbara today has our older kids, and Miss Raquel has our, our youngins. So very, very cool. So we're glad uh, glad you're here this morning, glad you braved the elements, the weather and the football game and all that to make your way out here, kind of a big deal, and uh, so we're real excited that you're here. We're actually launching into a whole new series this week, and uh, it's actually... As I kind of uh, alluded to a little bit earlier, these next four weeks are probably the most pivotal weeks in the life of our community. And so I'm going to be explaining a lot. We're going to make a lot of announcements. We're going to talk a lot about where we're going in the future. So you're going to want to be a part of these next four weeks because they're really important. And we're beginning that process today by embarking on this journey together in the series that I've simply entitled Ecclesia, um, And as we think about the church we're called to be. And, and I, I taught on the church before, and I've taught on community before, and this, this Greek word, ekklesia, is really the word in, in the New Testament that's used for the word church. Nowhere in the in the New Testament will one kind of a little bitty place does it refer to the actual gathering location, but almost exclusively in the New Testament, this word is used to mean assembly or gathering. The word ekklesia means the gathered people or the assembled people people. It is not a reference to a location. In our 21st century mindset, when we think about church, we think about buildings and locations because we go to church and we can leave church. But if you really read the Bible, if you really look at scripture, you can't go to church and you can't leave church. Church is who you are. It's who we are. That we're the gathered people of God. That where two or three or more of us are gathered together We are the church, which means you're the church here this morning, you're the church in the park. When you gather with believing friends in your home at dinner, you are the church where you are. And the church is the historic tool to be used by the Holy Spirit to tell the world about Jesus Christ. The church is the hands and feet of God. And what we're going to be exploring over the next few weeks is is what this word really means for us and who God is calling us to be. And we're going to really do it by circling around this idea of, of what it means to live in a really generous way. To live in a way as a church and a community that gives its life away. And not just in terms of finances, but in terms of your heart and your life and your resources. One of my deep desires for this community is that we would be a church that lived generously in everything that we do. That it would just sort of pour from who we are, our heart for the world, our heart for people, our our desire to see the kingdom of God come. That it would just sort of seep out of all the pores in our body. And that what people would say was that we were a a people, a community, a church that just lived so that the world would know who Christ is. So we're going to be unpacking these things over the next four weeks, and and I'm going to kind of do it in a little bit different way, because each week what I want to do is, is I want to talk about our vision, where we've been, who we are now, and where we're going. I want to talk about what your church needs from you, and I want to talk to you out of Scripture about what it means to engage in this generous lifestyle. So we're going to do that each week by kind of engaging in three things. Each week over the next four weeks, I'm going to share with you a vision point. Uh, as we anticipate 2012 and beyond you know who are we going to be how do we envision our future together and where the holy spirit is leading us we're going to we're going to explore a vision point each week we're also going to explore an action point which is really hey treb what does this church my church ask of me what do you need from me we'll explore an action point and then we're going to explore a teaching point which is we open scripture together what does the bible tell me about what it means to engage and live in community in a generous, authentic way. So each week we're going to kind of do that and explore these things. And, and that's why these vision gatherings that I was telling you about during our announcements, I'll, I'll tell you a little bit more about those later, are really going to be foundationally important. Because it's a place where you get to come and ask questions about the things that you're hearing. Or come and, and pray with us and buy in and laugh and learn and dream about who we can be together. So as you look at your bulletin, look at those dates and those things and mark your calendars. But by way of starting this series off, we have a lot that we want to get to today. We've got communion, a lot of amazing things that we want to celebrate. And so I'm going to hold off for one week in in exploring our our deep history and where we really believe that God is calling us to go until next week. I'm going to to allude to a few things today, but I'm going to hold off and and make some big announcements and some big things next week. Make sure that you're here to be a part of those. But I I want to share that when we have a lengthy amount of time to kind of tell you where we come from and where we're going. All right. We're going to allude to those things, but we're not going to dive into them too deeply this morning. We're going to get into those next week, so you're not going to want to miss that. But you know, one of the questions I get all the time from people is, Trevor, what is your vision for the vine? I mean, really, what is your vision for where God is calling us to go and be? And it's a question that I have, I have prayed over and I have wrestled with and I have sought the Lord over for countless and countless hours. Your leaders and I have committed to saying, God, where are you leading us? And we have sought and we have prayed And that question is burning uh, just a deep desire in our hearts. And so these vision points that I'm going to be sharing with you over the next few weeks are really a culmination of those things. It's a culmination of what we believe God is laying on our hearts as a church and who we're called to be. So this morning, we're going to unpack the first of those, and then we're going to kind of stack them on top of each other over the next four weeks and look at the building blocks for our vision for the future. But the first vision point that I want to share with us as a community is this, and it's this is worship. Now, it may seem like a generic term, but I want to explain it to you a little bit because part of our desire, our overwhelming desire, one of our key core values as a community is that we want to be driven by worship. Not what takes place here on Sunday morning. This is just a small aspect of what worship means. But really be driven by our desire that God would receive glory in all and through all. At the beginning of everything, through everything, and at the end of everything. That we would be an authentic worshiping community that wasn't defined by location, space, or style. That we could worship in the park and we could worship here and our life groups could engage in worship. And we could sing this kind of song and that kind of song and and no song at all and be engaged in worship. I mentioned that when we think about the word church or the word ecclesia, a lot of times our minds are geared towards location, space, buildings, things, and we become we become identified with whatever that space is. As we anticipate 2012, we recognize that we have some, some pretty significant growing edges as a church community. And while this space that we live in right here in Will Rogers, this rented space is, is lovely, it has some pretty significant limitations for us. And while we haven't reached those limitations numerically, we're reaching those limitations when we define worship. Because as you see, we've got lots of kids. We've got lots of young kids that are running around here and that we want to love into relationship with Christ. And right now, all those kids are engaged in hallways outside of restrooms or in, in different places. And we can't kind of, in a, in a really intentional way, help those kids engage in worship from infants all the way up through Elementary and middle school and, and even beyond. We recognize that, that our space has somewhat defined us. And as much as we love it, we realize that it's put limitations on us that we have to address when it comes to things like worship. Now next week I'm going to unpack a lot about what our heart is for children in 2012 and Vine Kids as a vision point. But really what I want you to hear today is that we know, we have, we have, we know two things. One, we know we need a a new space, an opportunity to really love kids well and engage in worship in a a holistic way. And and the second thing we know is that we're not going to be defined by it. So in 2012, you're going to be seeing us engage possibly in new worship space. And that doesn't mean that the church is going to go out. We're going to go out and buy property. We are actually fundamentally opposed to that at this point in time. Your leaders are committed because we have so many other things that we feel called to do with our resources than put them into property. But... That being said, we recognize that that's a huge part of of our being able to really worship in a way that allows people from all walks of life and all kids and all ages to engage in a God that is calling us into his glory. So when we think about vision for 2012, we have to understand that at some point in time, this place cannot define us. And as a church, we really gather wherever the Holy Spirit leads us to gather, and you're going to be seeing moves made in that direction in 2012. And one of the vision points that we're laying out there for 2012 is to no matter what, wherever we are, whatever we do, we will be engaged in worship. It will be the end and the beginning of everything we do. And it will not be contained in an hour and a half time slot. And it will not be contained by definitions of traditional, contemporary, vintage, experimental, whatever. It will be holistically us giving our entire lives over to Jesus. And wanting to see all people meet him face to face and have their lives changed. Worship-driven is who we are. It drives everything else that we do. If our heartbeat is not about the glory and honor of God, we will collapse. So our first vision point that we're going to be building all these other vision points on over the next three weeks is worship. Everything hinges on our ability and in our hearts to engage authentically in the worship of God. So, Trevor, if that's our vision, then then how how can I be engaged in that? How can I engage? How does my church need me? What do you need from me? And we've really developed, I've developed four action points that I'm really asking from this church. And the first one's going to seem simple, but it's actually the most important. And that is that we need you to commit to weekly and daily prayer for your church, for your pastors, and for your leaders. Now, most of us haven't really ever really deeply engaged in prayer for our church. We engage in prayer for our church in moments of crisis. So when things are struggling, when the you know, books aren't balancing, or when you know, we have the pastor, this happens, or when we have someone that has extreme loss, or when crisis hits, then we engage in, in a prayer for our church. But what we're asking you to do is to begin today by deeply and passionately praying for your leaders and for this church. Some of the things that we're going to be announcing over the next few weeks and talking about over the the next few weeks are incredibly exciting and incredibly difficult decisions that we want to be following and being prompted by the Holy Spirit to fully engage in what it means to be the church that God is calling us to be. And we need you to pray. As we begin to put our footsteps in the feet of Jesus, we will run into opposition from the enemy at every single step. And we need you to engage in praying for this community, that God would would grant us favor with people, that God would prepare the way for us and lead us, that God would have his Holy Spirit rest on us. Our desire as a church is not that God would bless us numerically. It's that God would turn our lives upside down and we would make him known to the world. That's it. And so we need you to pray. And I'm not saying it tongue-in-cheek like, oh, pray for us. Oh, okay, Trevor, I will. No, I'm saying please engage in deep prayer. And if you want a list of things that you can pray for, we will will make that known to you. We want you to engage specific prayer for us and for your leaders and for your church and where we're going. We want you to have a vested interest in the future of this community. So the first action point we're asking is if you have not engaged in deep prayer for this church, for for your leaders and for your pastor, please, we're imploring you to do so. Our future actually hangs on our ability as a church to pray that we would follow the Lord as we envision our future together and the church we're called to be it all begins by surrendering our hearts for the Lord When well laid plans of man are futile we want to be able to follow the Holy Spirit so we begin this process by saying this our vision for the for the future really begins and ends with worship and not defined in this space but worship in terms of our hearts are we really willing as we're gonna learn here in just a little bit to fully give our heart to Jesus and are you willing to to support this community with your prayers to pray for the people beside you and and not just sort of when I tell you to when we open our Bibles together but deeply pray for them deeply pray that we might be a community that is open to seeing people from all walks of life come to know Jesus Christ and not just some kind of club for those that we know but that it would just pour out of us and then when people would walk in here for the first time what they would say is look I don't know much about all that they're doing but man they love the Lord and it is evident in everything that they do So our first building blocks are those two points. We want to be a community that's driven by worship. In every category, not defined by space, our space will change. And we want to be a community that is deep prayer for itself, its church, God's honor and glory. So as we begin to think about things in that context, what does it really mean as a church if we're praying and living into this sort of heartbeat to have a generous, authentic life that surrenders our heart to Jesus? Well, all of this, vision and all, begins in one place, and it begins with the person of Jesus Christ. And this morning, we're going to begin to engage in that process by opening Scripture and saying, God, what would it look like as a church, as an individual, if we gave our hearts entirely and totally to you? What would you then do, and how would you turn our world upside down? So we're going to be in the book of Mark this morning, chapter 10. If you've got your Bible in front of you, I want you to, uh, to grab it and I want you to open up to Mark chapter 10. If not, there's a bunch laying around. Pick one up and uh, follow along with me. We love to have you look in Scripture and actually see this stuff for a couple of reasons. One, because I think that your engagement in Scripture is more important than you listening to me. All right, This is God's truth. My, my prayer is that God would use me, but the reality is I'd much rather you be engaged in Scripture. And secondly, I just want you to know that we're not making this stuff up. I mean, this, is, this stuff is real, and it's true. And God's Word is alive, and it is living, and it is active, and tells us that it's sharper than the double-edged sword, that it penetrates the dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. And God's Word is alive, and an encounter with God's Word is an encounter with the living God. So um, we take this stuff very seriously. We have a very high authority of Scripture when we think about uh, the Bible, and so uh, this is where we spend our time every Sunday. So... Go ahead and open up to Mark chapter 10, and uh, before we go to it, let's take a moment and just pray together. Lord, we do thank you for all that you're doing in our midst. Lord, we thank you for the exciting things to come that we'll be talking about over the next few weeks, the announcements that we'll make, the journey that we begin together. God, we thank you that you're moving in our midst, and Lord, we thank you for The way you blessed us last week with Church in the Park. God, the new folks we were able to see. The gospel that was proclaimed. The community that was built. Lord, what an amazing picture of of living together as the church. When everybody comes and shares their lives together. All walks of life, all backgrounds, all races. Sharing a life and celebrating the goodness of who you are. Lord, we pray this morning that you would continue that joy in our hearts as we open your word together. God, that you would continue challenging us to think about the church you're calling us to be, and what it might mean if we engage in a generous life that began by giving our hearts away. Take just a moment where you are and just ask God to to move in you this morning. Just whisper that in your heart. Just ask that God would move. God, just move in me. Pray for someone beside you. <clears throat> Even if you don't know them or have never seen their name, just pray for them. And just pray that God would, he would do something in their heart this morning. He would just whisper to their soul. Just pray for that person. God, we pray for your glory and your honor alone. Convict us and challenge us and turn our lives upside down in the name of Jesus. Amen. Book of Mark, chapter 10, let's take a look at verse 17 together. As Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. And he said, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. Oh, I lost my place there. No one is good but God alone. Um, You know the commandments, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not give false testimony, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. Teacher, he declared, all these I have kept since I was a boy. Jesus looked at him and loved him. One thing you lack, he said, go and sell everything you have and give it to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come and follow me. At this the man's face fell and he went away sad because he had great wealth. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how hard is it for the rich to enter the kingdom of God? The disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus said again, Children, how hard is it to enter the kingdom of God? It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for the rich man to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were even more amazed and said to each other, Who then can be saved? And Jesus looked at them and said, With man this is impossible, but not with God. All things are possible with God. Now on some level most of us are probably pretty familiar with this text. We tend to ignore it but we're pretty familiar with it um, because we we understand that there's a significant thing at play here that I want us to really deal with this morning and we've heard this sort of metaphor before if we've been in church at all about the rich and the eye of the needle and, and kind of that and what it means to maybe give your stuff away and and, and really there's something much bigger at play. But but look at what's happening. Jesus and his disciples are walking down the road and it says this man. Mark actually calls him a man. Luke calls him uh, a ruler. And Matthew calls him young. You put all those together and you got a rich young ruler. Okay, so we're dealing with this, this rich young ruler. We know he's got great wealth, okay. We know he's a ruler. And what that, usually what that means is that he's involved in some kind of kind of upper echelon Jewish ruling council, most likely a religious one. So he's kind of an up-and-comer in terms of religious categories and, and leadership. He's wealthy and he's a young man, which means he's kind of got endless opportunities for power. And he comes running. He says that he ran up to Jesus and disciples and he falls on his knees before Jesus. So you've got this scene where Jesus' disciples and most likely a whole bunch of other people were standing in the road and this wealthy person, kind of powerful young ruler guy comes running up and he slides on his knees before Jesus and he has this question that is burning a hole in his heart. And he says, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus' response is is almost somewhat surprising, you know. We kind of think that Jesus would maybe address this question, but Jesus says, you know, why do you call me good? God alone is good, and Jesus isn't isn't denying his own goodness. He's basically pointing this man to to this total reliance on the God that really is his answer. Because here we're going to learn this man has done a whole lot of things right, and he probably sees Jesus as doing things even more right, and Jesus is actually pointing him to the God who made all. But he says, Jesus looks at him and he says, you know, why do you call me good? And, and, he, and this, this man on his knees is, is asking about how inherent in life. And Jesus basically runs through a few of the commands with him. He says, okay, well, well, you know, keep the commands. Don't murder, don't steal, don't commit adultery, don't defraud, da da da, da. And the man on his knees is going, going, teacher, I have kept every one of those commands since I was a boy. I've kept them all. I've done that. You almost get the sense that there's some s- sincerity in his voice. Like, you really almost want to believe him, that he really has kept these commandments. And yet, he still feels empty. There's still something that's missing. He's like, Jesus, I've, I've tried that. I haven't I've, I've killed a soul. I, I haven't done anything wrong. I haven't stolen anything. I've, I've kept those religious commands. In fact, I'm, I'm kind of an up-and-comer in the religious system, and I've done everything that that system tells me I should do. Yet, I still find myself on my knees before you. Because something is driving this man to Jesus. Here he's kept this sort of perfect moral life. We don't have any reason to believe he hasn't. Yet he's driven by this question that burns a hole in his heart to find himself at the feet of Jesus. And his question kind of gives him away, right? He's like, How do I inherit or get eternal life? In other words, what must I do to get this? Because all his life, this man has probably been told or has probably learned that you have to do certain things to achieve certain places. Show and honor and and, and all those things that you would think about when it comes to commandments so that the, the elders will be able to recognize that in you and they will elevate you to a higher place. And everything that He did was about keeping these things so that I can get something else. Yet all these things weren't fulfilling me, and somehow I want to engage in this idea of eternal life. What happens when I die? How do I how can I be sure I've got that covered? Just tell me what to do. I will do anything. And Jesus says, we'll keep the commands. And he's like, teacher, man, I've done that. And I still feel like there's something more to be done. And Jesus looks at him and he says, one thing you lack, right? Take all that you have. <clears throat> Actually, the Greek word he uses for everything is literally means every tiny little thing. And sell it. And give it to the poor. And then you will have treasure in heaven. Well, It says that this, the man's face fell. And it's actually a really funny Greek word, Greek sentence there, but it it really just means his face just kind of poured to the ground. And we've all had that happen. I mean, when, when, you know, you look at your children and you tell them something they don't want to hear, and those eyes and those, this whole thing is like devastation, you know. When everything you've been hoping on is just, it was almost like you just got shot. It says that his face fell. And he turned and he went away sad. And it's tragic almost. His face falls. He's disappointed. His heart is broken because the text says he had great wealth. And he went away sad. And Jesus turns to the disciples and he says, You know, how hard is it for the rich to enter the kingdom of heaven? And they were amazed at this because, I mean, if the rich couldn't enter the kingdom of heaven, then who could? Because all their lives they've been taught that by doing things and buying things and and operating in this kind of category culturally, you were given privilege religiously. And if that group of people that we honor and revere and respect and that wear all the right clothing and robes and get all the right seats in the religious establishment, if that group of people can't inherit eternal life, then what hope is there for the rest of us? Even the disciples were kind of just racked over this question. So Jesus says it again. He turns to them and he says, Friends, how hard is it? To enter the kingdom of heaven, I tell you the truth, it is, it is easier for a camel, which would have been the, the largest known mammal, right, in that whole area. Everyone would have seen one. They're all around. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle, which obviously is impossible. The smallest hole, the biggest animal. Than it is for a rich person in the kingdom of heaven. And, and, and the disciples are just going, well, then what do we do? I mean, then who can be saved? And Jesus says, with man, this is impossible. But not with God. All things are possible with God. So you, what Jesus says is impossible or is actually possible with the Lord. Now, the interesting thing about this text is that most of us think that this text is really about money. We think it's about the rich people and, and, um, and we think it's about wealth. And most of us have read it and we've kind of gotten away from it because we're not really convicted by it because not one of us in this room believes we're rich. I mean that's just true. Not one of us in this room believes we're rich. Now there's never enough money, we always have things to do and there's always someone that has more. And if I were to ask you, which I'm not, to raise your hand if you're wealthy, no one would raise their hand. Because all of us in our western mindsets have looked around us and we all see people that have more than we do. So none of us most likely would actually admit to being rich. Our western mindset won't allow it. But we all know, from a global perspective, we're in the top .05% of the wealthiest people in the world are gathered in this room. And it includes the least of you to the greatest of you. But the majority of the world's population lives on less than $2 a day. I mean, we could go through all the statistics. The truth is you're incredibly wealthy. I'm incredibly wealthy. Financially wealthy. But most of us don't really want to engage in that so we avoid the conviction, right? Well, I mean, he's talking to rich people. I know it's hard for them, you know. But for me, I mean, I'm not wealthy. So we, we and then the other thing that we kind of, we dodge when we think about this text is this, is that surely Jesus isn't really telling all of us to, to sell our stuff. I mean, Trump, tell me, please tell me that Jesus isn't telling me to go out and sell all my things. See, this passage really at its core is not about money and about stuff, it's about heart. In Matthew chapter 6, in the end, towards the middle and the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus shares this passage with those that are gathered around. He says, Do not store up for yourself treasures in heaven, or treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourself treasures in heaven, where moth and rust do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart is also. So where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And what did Jesus tell this rich young ruler? He said, if you give away all your stuff, you sell it all and give it to the poor, where will your treasure be? Well, it'll be in heaven. See, what we're really talking about is heart. And what this man's fundamental problem was, was his wealth. See, because he was willing to give his life to Jesus. But just not all of it. As we look at this passage and I think about heart, and I think about what it truly means to give our hearts away. It's not a formulaic passage. What I'm saying here is, if you walk out of these doors and you go to the bank and you ask for all of your money to come back to you in in dollars, right? I want a briefcase full of dollars, and I want to take everything I have. I want to get on Craigslist. I want to listen. I want to sell it all, and I want to come up with X number of money. I have nothing, and I'm standing in the middle of the street with a briefcase full of dollars, and I give all that away. It does not mean you're going to heaven. It does not mean you have eternal life. It's not a formula. What Jesus was doing was dealing with this man in the middle of the part of his life that he didn't want to give away. Which is exactly where Jesus wants to deal with you. Three quick things I want you to say here. This man was willing to give his whole life, he giving his life, he just wasn't willing to give all of it. This is you and me to the core. We are willing to give our life to Jesus, we're just not willing to give all of it. And this man fell on his knees, trembling before, the, before Christ. And he says, what must I do to a tear to turn to life? I will do anything you ask and tell me. I want this so deeply. And Jesus says, give your stuff away. And he leaves. He goes away. He can't do it. He's broken. Because Jesus asked for the one thing that this man couldn't surrender, and that was his whole heart. See, this defines you and defines me to the core. Because I come to the Lord and I go, God, I will give you anything I have except for this one thing that I don't want to give away. And then that's kind of off limits. Sometimes that's sin. Sometimes it's a relationship. Sometimes it's money. Sometimes it's stuff. Sometimes it's things. We hold on to those things like like it's the one thing that if I just can't control this, God, you can wreck the rest of my life. But if I have this, somehow I'm safe. And what's the one thing that Jesus is going to go after? is that one thing. Why? Because that's what's keeping you from giving your entire heart away. And Jesus wants all of it. You've got to be willing to give your heart, to live generously, to engage in a generous life that says, God, I want every part of me to be for your glory. means that we have to be willing to give every part of our heart. The second thing I want you to see in here is this. is Jesus loved this man. I find this so remarkable. So here's this guy on his feet, and he and he's kind of saying, I've kept all these commands. And in verse 21, Jesus looked at him and loved him and said, one thing you lack. Now, don't miss this. This is really crazy. Here's this guy on his knees, and he's saying, Jesus, I've done it all. Man, I, I haven't killed a soul. I've kept all these things. So I will do anything to get this eternal life. And it says that Jesus looked at him, caught eyes with him, and loved him. Now this may not sound remarkable to you because isn't Jesus supposed to love everybody? I mean, it's just kind of what God is. He's love, so no surprise. But think about it for a minute. I mean, there's part of me, if we're real honest, that thinks that God is disappointed in me, often in my lack of trust, my lack of inability to give things over. That that God, while He loves me, is still like Trev again. Really. I mean, just disappointed. Most of us think that God is disappointed in our silly fears and our lack of faith and our inability to be completely obedient, whatever it is. We think that God is disappointed. And rightly so. But in the middle of all that, God loves this man. Jesus was almost moved by him. He looked at him and he loved him and he said, one thing you lack. What I want you to understand is this, Jesus' call and command for your whole life and for your heart is not to spite you, stick it to you, and prove prove to you how worthless you are. Most of the time we think God is just calling us to those things because he wants us to remember that we have nothing without him. The truth, if you look at that verse, is that Jesus' call for this man was because he loved him. Jesus called him to give it away because he loved him. You know, Jesus called for obedience on your life to give your life away, all of it, your heart away, every piece of it is because he loves you. It's not because he wants to punish you and hurt you and make life hard. It's not because God is some kind of mean dictator that sits up and says, oh, yeah, one last thing, zap. And he zaps out right out of your hands and he goes, see, now you have nothing and you're really happy. It's not how God works. God has this deep love for you. And he wants so much for your life. He wants you to trust him and know him in a way that is beyond measure. And because of that, he loves you and he calls you to give the one thing that you won't let go of because his plan is better for your life. And so he loved this rich young ruler enough to call him to surrender his heart. Jesus loves you so much that he's calling you to surrender all of your heart. All of it. And the third thing, and lastly, and we'll kind of wrap it up, is this, what I find so tragic, is that this man was unwilling, unwilling to surrender that part of his life, and so he goes away. We don't have any evidence in Scripture that he ever came back or that he went and sold his stuff and did all that. We just see this sort of tragic moment where here, this man is standing in the presence of the living God, and the living God calls him to let go of this, and he cannot do it or he won't do it, and his face falls and he goes away sad. What did Jesus tell him? Go and sell it all, then you'll have treasure in heaven, and come and follow me. It wasn't just about giving away your stuff, giving away your heart, and putting your feet in the footsteps of Christ. It's tragic, but it's really true, which is Jesus' call for you to surrender your heart has got to be all-in. And most of us are standing in the presence of God, and God is calling us to let go of this thing, this, this whatever it is, this part of our life, calling us to it. And the question is, are we willing to say, okay, God, I trust you. I really trust you. Here it is. I told you I'd give you everything. I'm surrendering it. I'm letting go of those fears, those failures, those struggles, that whatever it is, here's my whole heart. Or do we allow our lives to become broken because the, we can't let go of the one thing that God is calling us to, and that is our whole heart. An entire heart. Hear me say this. Over the next few weeks, you're going to hear us talk a lot about giving. Giving our lives, our hearts, our our resources away. This church does not want one single dollar of your money until you give your life to Jesus. We are not going to ask for one single resource that you have until you give your heart completely and totally to the Lord. The Lord will provide for us. We are not worried about that. Our heartbeating commitment is that you would meet Christ. What you're not going to hear us talk about when we talk about giving is we need your resources. We're going to tell you, you need to give your heart to Christ. And then out of that compelling kind of God changed me and radically turned my life upside down, I want to give everything I have, not only to the church, but to people, to my family, to relationships. I want to be a person that generous life pours out of. But don't ever give us a dollar until you're able to give your heart to the Lord. That's all we care about. We are not looking to accumulate things. We are looking for you to surrender your heart to Jesus because that will turn the world upside down. God will use you to turn the world upside down because we cannot understand what it means to give until we understand the one who gave it all for us. And this morning we're going to engage in this table. We're going to engage in communion together and we are going to celebrate and live into the reality that the one who gave his entire life for us is the one who teaches us what it means to give. And what was so kind of ironic about this passage with the rich young ruler in Jesus, that this man doesn't even know, and even the disciples don't know, is that this man was unwilling to let go of his things. Yet Jesus was going to give his very life away. This morning, whatever you're holding on to, whatever struggle, whatever part of your heart and your life that you have yet to be able to truly release, I want you to understand that the God who loves you so deeply has given his entire life so that you might know him. And this table is a picture of that. It's a picture of a God who was so deeply in love with us that he sacrificed his own life so that we might have abundant life here on earth and the promise of eternal life in heaven. That the picture of this table is the picture of a God who gave it all away. Because he loves you deeply and he loves me deeply. And this morning as we engage in this table together, we're really engaging in what it means to give it all away. Our hearts and our lives. Jesus wants your entire heart, and he is going to ask for the one thing that you won't let go of. Always. This morning, as we prepare to take this meal together and share in this, I challenge you to say, what is the thing that God is calling you? What part of your heart are you unwilling to release? What is it? And before you engage in this table with us, I challenge you to come face to face with it and be willing to lay it down for the God who laid it all down for you and for me. Let's pray.